Hello everyone, this is Jerome. I serve as a community pastor here at First Christian Church. Welcome to our brand new podcast. I'm so glad that we get to serve you today through this message. God bless you. Let's get into the word. There was a point not long in our ministry in Taiwan where Kathy and I began to see the the work of the Holy Spirit very clearly and alive and well in our spiritual children there who God had called out of darkness, literally out of paganism, into his marvelous light so that they could declare the praises of him who had called them from that dark place into a new relationship with him. And one of the unmistakable signs that people are knowing their creator and that the spirit is alive and well in them is conviction about sin, where they can no longer live like they used to, that they feel the separation from God when they're not walking with him. And one day, uh, one of our younger women in the church came to Kathy and I. She was actually one of our worship leaders. She was a single mother. Her husband was an alcoholic and had abandoned her and her two young children. And uh, she was, you know, struggling as a single mom and lonely. And she came and said, I need to talk to you guys. So she came to our house and she just started weeping and said, I have sinned, and I've been involved in a relationship with someone at work, and I know it's not right, I know it's wrong, and I can't bear it, and I just need to tell you. And so we just loved her and listened to her and um, encouraged her to just take some time off from leadership at the church, and um, that we would help her just work through this struggle, this lonely time in <clears throat> her life. And uh, she left. In the next couple of days, it was like the Lord was hammering me. And I kept hearing him say, so is that all you're going to do? There is someone out there, a wolf, that is preying on one of your sheep. What are you going to do about it? I, I felt that. I heard that so clearly from the Lord. And so I finally persuaded Gwen, and her name has been changed to protect the guilty, uh, to give me the name of this guy at work. And sure enough, I knew it. He was a American English teacher there and Taiwan was full of these young guys that would come on this adventure and prey on young Taiwanese women. And uh, <clears throat> so she actually told me his name. I didn't tell her what I was going to do. I didn't tell Kathy what I was going to do. I've learned to ask for forgiveness later. Um, so I found out 
when he took his breaks in the afternoon. I went and I waited across the street at one of our favorite little eateries. And uh, I saw this young American man come out of the English school, walk down to the corner, uh, <clears throat> Taiwanese version of Quick Trip. So I walked over and waited for him outside. I put on my dark glasses. And he came out, and I walked up, and I said, are you John? And I put my hand on his neck, and he looked at me and said, yeah. I said, come with me. And I marched him across the street, and <clears throat> he looked at me and said, are you going to kill me? <laughs> it was honestly one of the funnest things I've ever done in my life. We, we went over and sat down, and... Uh, I said, I know what you've been doing with Gwen, and uh, she's my sister. We have the same father, different mothers, but the same father. And uh, I said, don't you look at her, don't you talk to her, you stay away from her, or I will have you kicked off this island. I said, I've been here longer than you are alive. And some of that was not exactly true, but, um, <clears throat> and then I thought, then I felt the Lord saying to me, you know, you really ought to care about this guy too. And so I, I did. I said, maybe it's time for you to get your life together. You know what you're doing here on this island is wrong, and God cares about you. He's not pleased with what you're doing, and... Uh, Maybe this would be a good time for you to think about how you're living. And he listened to every word. And then I said, you can go back to work now. So <clears throat> the next Sunday, um, Gwen found Kathy and I. And she looked. And in the meantime, I had confessed to my wife what I had done. And it was too late for her to do anything about it. So um, Gwen looked at me and said, what did you do? He won't even look at me. He won't talk to me. And um, it's, I, I feel free. I feel like I've been set free from this. So I, I, uh, what I experienced was someone who felt unprotected finally feel protected and loved. And Gwen knew that she was part of a new community that most people in Taiwan had never experienced a community of faith of people who were getting to know their creator and moving into a completely different way of living, one that changed the way they live, but also um, took care of them, this community. And so that was, uh, that was an important lesson to me of part of what I think it means to be like Jesus. And we're going to see him in action this morning in our story. And as we continue on in our journey of like Jesus, we're, we're pausing this month to ask the question, what does it really mean to be like Jesus? So that we just don't continue on in the Sunday school rhetoric, but that it really makes a difference in how we live. Maybe a better way to ask that is what stands out about Jesus that should also stand out about us? And I've 
notice four things that you just can't miss when you read the Gospels. And we've been reviewing them week by week. And the first one is that Jesus had a life purpose. And he expressed it clearly. He knew why he had come. He knew what he was up to. And he was doing it. And he talked about it. The second is that he loved unloved, unlovely people. And sometimes those were people that were difficult to love. And he loved them anyway. We talked about that last week. Thirdly, he stood his ground against evil, and he always overcame evil with good. But he wasn't always gentle when he did that. And I think that um, we, if we have this image of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, we've, it's been a while since we've read our New Testaments. And fourthly, he gave his life for what he believed. And that might be the most obvious thing about him. But what we need to understand is he sacrificed everything for that. So today we're going to focus on the third one about how Jesus stood his ground against evil and he overcame evil with good. That he was a friend of sinners and it seems that he was always confronting evil. And people, I hope that this morning... What you walk away with is that if we are going to be like Jesus, if we are going to be a friend of sinners, we will have to confront evil. There's no way around it. We cannot let it just happen. We cannot let it just go. And Jesus gladly accepted this title for himself, that he was a friend of sinners, because it was intentional how he was living. Check this Scripture out in Matthew 11, verse 19. He's talking about the hypocrisy of people who were reacting to him, especially the Jewish leaders, and how they compared him to John the Baptist, who came neither eating or drinking, the verse before this says, and they thought he had a demon. But now the Son of Man came eating and drinking which is what he was accused of, right? You even eat with sinners. And they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was his title. He knew it. But then he says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. You can tell who someone is by what they do. You can tell what they believe by how they live and how they act. So Jesus often found himself confronting evil people because he loved sinful people. And it wasn't that he just got into their sin and loved hanging out with dirty, dark, sinful people. It was that he knew nobody else did, and that was part of what he needed to do. He loved all people, not just the likable, lovable ones. You see, Satan does not want sinful people to experience the love of God, and he unfortunately uses religious people to push sinners away from God. I don't ever want us to be guilty of that here at FCC. John, Jesus' closest friend, tells us in his little letter at the end of your New Testament, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that the Son of Man appeared to destroy the devil's work. And when we partner with Jesus to love people who feel trapped in sin, 
we are partnering with him in his mission to destroy the devil's work. Jesus called out and confronted evil systems and evil people who were only condemning and not redeeming the lost. Let me say that again. Jesus called out and confronted evil systems and evil people who were only condemning but not redeeming the lost. And this is another way that Jesus discipled his disciples. They got to see him in action every day, loving sinful people and confronting the evil that was keeping them out of the kingdom of God. The setting for our story, which by the way is the adulterous woman in John chapter 8, the first 11 verses, the setting for this story is the previous chapter where Jesus had been at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And the religious leaders had sent the temple guards to find him in the temple area where he was teaching every day and arrest him. They'd had enough. They were going to do what they had in mind to do to him. So they sent the temple guards and they came back empty-handed. And you can read about this at the end of chapter 7. The religious leaders were not amused. And they said, where's Jesus? Why didn't you bring him back? And they said, no one ever spoke like this man before. And they said, you mean he's deceived you also? They said, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Then Nicodemus stood up and said, Do we accuse anyone before we hear what they have to say? And the rest of this council of religious leaders said to Nick, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Which was the worst um, racial slur that they could come up with for anyone of their own people. Are you from Galilee too? They said, look into it, and you'll find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. These guys did not even know their own scripture. Check this out. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. No prophet comes from Galilee? Your own scriptures told you that the Messiah would come from Galilee. So anyway, that's the backdrop for what is happening here. And we're going to get into our story now. We have a guest storyteller who's going to come and share this story with us. And then we'll see what God is saying to us. Micah, thank you. All right. Um, 
So this is one of my favorite stories. So I was like, hey, I've got it memorized. You want me to tell it this morning? And he's like, yeah, sure. So uh, the story begins. I'm glad he gave the, the background to it so you kind of know what's happening because the story kind of starts just right in the middle of that. So the story begins. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next day, he was back in the temple courts. Soon, a crowd gathered, and so Jesus sat down and began to teach them. While he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. And then they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says that she should be stoned. What do you say? They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus knelt down and began to write in the dust with his finger. But they kept demanding an answer from him. And so Jesus stood up and he said, All right, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped back down and continued writing in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up and he said, woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. All right. Now, before I give the mic back to my dad, I usually go through it twice, but you guys are pretty familiar with this story. I want to ask a few of these little dialogue questions to kind of familiarize you with it so that we can really pull out your discovery from the story. All right. So in the beginning of the story, where did Jesus go back to? Do you remember? The Mount of Olives, but what time the next day was he back in the temple courts? Early the next morning. So he's back there in the temple courts, and who soon gathered? A crowd. So what did Jesus do? He sat down and began to do what with them? Teach them. Now, while he was speaking, who came in? So it says the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, who did they bring in? A woman who had, what? Who is this woman? In the act. <laughs> That's crazy. Caught in the act of adultery. And where did they put her? In front of the crowd. All right? So then what did the religious leaders call Jesus? Remember, what did they call him? Teacher. Not Messiah. Not Lord. Teacher. All right? And they said, this woman has been what? In the act of adultery. They were very clear with this, right? And then what did they say? What did they refer to? The law of Moses says what? She should be stoned. And then they asked him a question. What do you say? And John gives us a little insight. Remember what they were trying to do? What were they doing with this? They were trying to trap him into saying what? Something they could use against him. But Jesus, not playing their game, what did he do? He knelt down, 
and begin writing in the dust with his toe, his finger, all right? But what did they keep doing? They kept demanding an answer from him. So Jesus stands up, and he just says one little sentence. He says, okay, all right, but let the one who has never done what? Have you ever used cast? Throw, <laughs> some trans, I'm doing the New Living Translation, so throw the first stone. So this is really, really key. When the, and what, is, what does John call the religious leaders? When the accusers, when they heard this, what did they begin doing? They, they slipped away two by two, uh-huh, one by one. My kids love it when I say the wrong thing. They're like, no. They slipped away one by one until only who was left in the middle of the crowd? Only Jesus was left where? In the middle of the crowd with who? The woman. So then Jesus stands. There's lots of like kneeling and standing. Jesus stands back up, and who does he talk to? The woman. He goes, woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them do what to you? Condemn you. And how does she respond? No, Lord. Lord. She gets it right. They call him teacher. What does the woman call him? Lord. It's pretty cool. And then Jesus' response to her, he says, neither, neither do I go and sin no more. All right. You guys did good. You were listening. All right. Take it away. Thank you, Micah. Great. <clears throat> Stories are so much easier to memorize and learn than something that's just text because you can imagine it happening. <clears throat> um, so my grandson, Eli, who's sitting back there next to his daddy, has been coming and drawing a picture of every story on Sunday. He might need a little parental supervision on this one, Micah. You may have noticed, just a couple observations about this. You may have noticed that the co-conspirator in the adultery scandal is missing. The man. Where is he? You know, these religious leaders were only half right. The law commanded the death of both. And you can check this out in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Um, but they don't care about the law. They don't. They have another agenda in mind. And something to keep in mind, when you hear something that you discover is not really true or only half true from your leaders, you can bet that they have another agenda in mind. That's why it's so important for us to be people of the Word and know what God has actually said. Just a little more setting to this incident. Um, and that is that in Jewish custom and culture, the day following any Jewish festival was to be observed as a Sabbath, even if it wasn't Saturday, even if it wasn't on the Sabbath, the following day of a festival was to be a day of rest. And so all the Sabbath rules applied to that day. This was the eighth day. This was the day after the Feast of Tabernacles that we read about that you can read about in John chapter 7. And 
there is an oral interpretation of the law that existed at this time um, that added lots of Sabbath rules to the original Sabbath law, which simply said, don't work, rest. Hang out with your family, worship God on the Sabbath. And, but the religious leaders had added lots of rules to this. One of them was you can't write on the Sabbath because that's like work. However, you can write in the dust on the Sabbath because it leaves no permanent mark. Jesus was showing these religious leaders when he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, not only do I know the law, I know all of the rules that you have added to the law. And what he says next indicates that he probably wrote the requirement of the law in the dust. You're right, death, stone her. But let him who has no sin be the first to throw a stone at her. You see, Jesus focuses the weight of responsibility on these religious leaders in that moment. You can feel the tension if you pause and read between the lines. Now the responsibility was on them. Who's without sin? Go ahead and let's fulfill the requirement of the law. Humiliated, they withdraw. Jesus takes no, no pride in their humiliation. He doesn't gloat. He bends down again. Humiliated, they withdraw. And having humiliated powerful people, Jesus knows that they'll be back. They're not done. They'll be back, but next time with the bigger stick. You see, at great cost, Jesus has shifted the hostility of an evil system and evil people from the woman to himself. People, this is our Jesus. He always takes our place. This is the meaning of his life. This is the meaning of his cross. It's for us. This woman experienced him inserting himself, substituting himself in this moment and actually saving her life. How willing are you to go against the grain and stand for what's true and stand for what's right? Maybe... God is calling you to be the one who finally says enough of the evil that you see going on around you. I have a daily mantra that I have trained myself to mutter under my death, under my breath all day long and it's this, people first. I am such a task-oriented person, such an A-type 
personality that I have to remind myself to put my list aside and make time for people. And this week, as I was thinking about this story, I asked myself, what will, what will people say about me at the end of my life? Wow, he was ambitious and he got a lot done. Or he loved people. Barbara Johnson is a uh, Christian comedian, and I only know about her because my wife has some of her books. Um, <clears throat> she says, never let a problem to be solved become more important than a person to be loved. And it's actually part of the content of our Like Jesus stuff this week uh, that you can read in our companion book, Walk Like Jesus. You see, Jesus condemned people who were selfishly ambitious. Check this out in Matthew chapter 23. This sealed the deal on him. This was one of the last messages that he gave, and it was to the religious community. He said to the crowds and to his disciples... And the religious leaders were listening. He said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they are your teachers. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do because they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is for people to see. It's for show. They make their phylacteries wide. These were little boxes full of scriptures that were actually um, on their forehead with a headband, if you can imagine that. Quite fashionable. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long, which represented all of the time that they spent in prayer they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats at the synagogues. Sounds like politicians more than pastors, huh? They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Woe to you. And then he speaks to these guys. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. If you want to ha learn how to win friends and influence people, don't listen to Jesus. Where do you see evil systems or evil people who are keeping people away from God rather than drawing them to God? You see, the difference should be clear. We either, and let's look in the mirror this morning, okay? We either connect people to God 
or we disconnect people from God. And are you willing to stand your ground against evil and overcome it with good? When you do, they will come for you. Not everyone gets it. And not everyone will get you if you do. Some time ago, John Taylor, who was on staff at the time, he's one of our elders now, and he's sitting right over there. John, raise your hand. Come on. Um, John received this letter from a member at FCC. And the letter begins, Mr. Taylor, I'm writing today to tell you why I'm starting to search for a new church. And his first beef was that he thought our elders should be successful businessmen, not men who are serving. And I quote. His next beef goes like this. The other concern of mine is the direction our teacher, Chuck Foreman, is taking. I'm not sure I can take another reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. Several times in the past couple months, I've witnessed his arms extended into a cross with his palms out during the sermon lesson. Aren't you guys glad I never do that now? I feel like I should be ministering to ex-cons and the homeless. I'm just not ready to take a homeless man to breakfast. I'm also not sure I want to sit next to an ex-con and have my children exposed to them. Does this make me less of a Christian? Probably. But it is certainly telling me that maybe I, should be a mem I shouldn't be a member of your congregation. I feel that maybe the church is only one step or two away from sending the church van down to Van Buren to pick up the homeless and bring them to one of our services. And we thought, that's a great idea. <laughs> is this really the direction the church is taking? Are these people really the people that we need to fill our offerings? You have no idea how often I have to respond to letters or comments like that, like this. Unfortunately, I couldn't this one because there was no name. I think the big idea this morning, and maybe you have another one or a better one, is when we love sinful people, we will have to confront evil people who are preventing them from entering the kingdom of heaven. Let's be on the side that is inviting people in to the kingdom, not preventing them from entering. Okay, what's going on in you? Let's, uh, let's share what are you discovering in this story? What do you think God is telling you that the rest of us need to hear? We have a microphone in this aisle and in this aisle. And um, we're, we're trying to make church no longer a spectator sport at FCC and engage 
the Word of God together as the community faith. Yes, Darren. Um, I live in the, uh, a very diverse neighborhood in South Phoenix. And uh, yesterday, my wife and I went to buy a piece of furniture in one of the local Hispanic shops, which, which I love because you can haggle. And uh, <laughs> we pull up in, my, in, in our car, and I'm there. I said, we should go home and get the truck because when I make a deal, I want to be able to take the piece of furniture right there and have action. So we go back to the house. We pick up the big truck, which she hates, and I go back to the store. We make the deal, and in the deal, they agreed to deliver it. She says, so we brought the truck for no reason? And I walk out, and there's a lot of commotion, and there's a 45-foot motor home from 1972 broke down in the intersection of Central and Rosier's where we're at. And it's huge, and it's, it's, it's causing a problem, and people are honking, and the thing looks abandoned. I can't find a driver. I'm looking in the thing, and he's stuck in the middle of the street. I said, we brought for no reason. I get to help this guy. I have tow hooks. I got everything in my truck. But I can't find him. And people are yelling at me like it's mine. And I'm just, it is what it is. So the little guy comes out. And he's Asian persuasion. And he's, he's every bit of 80. And now I looked at him like, I'm going to have to do all the work here. I'm the one crawling under the car. I'm the one going to be hooking up the chains. And so I'm under this truck. And I've got my tow hook. And I hear the owner of the store going to my wife says, oh, your husband's a nice man. She said, that's not my husband. That's, that's Christ working through him. Oh. And that, uh, that made it worth it because, you know, I have a new shirt on and I'm in clean jeans and I'm trying to hook up. And it was just to hear her say something like that because that's what it's about. And it was no one stopped to help this guy. And I was able to move him and to get him safe and to get him some help. And it was, it was just... Like she said, it's Christ in us, and that's uh, what we talked about in that story today. Amen. You came to the aid of the helpless. That's great, Darren. We thought we thought maybe Brenda just wasn't going to claim you, but that's awesome. Todd. Hi. Morning. Hey, John. Uh, yeah, I really love this. This is this is what it's about. Like standing up, like Jesus standing up for that woman like we we are in this world but we don't have to be of it and accept the garbage that other people are wanting you to accept and just put your blinders on and say well that's okay Jesus could have done that because that's what everyone believed was the law but the law wasn't right and if uh, you all I don't know if anybody's heard of uh, it's a country song it's from Aaron Lewis if you get a chance just google it and it's the song uh, it's called Am I the only one? And it fits this perfectly, just like all of us. When, when we go out, or is he, um, I can't remember his name. Darren. Yeah, Darren, just like him, going out and helping that guy with the truck. You know, am I the only one? He didn't do it to lift him up, 
but he did it to help others. Anyway, Thank you, thanks. Tom. Yeah, we, we come to the aid of the helpless, and we stand up for those who are being hurt by evil. One, one thing that hit me this week is the idea that evil is just not this abstract, dark, demonic something out there. Evil is whatever is harming a person. Whatever is hurting someone who's been created in the image of God is evil. And as his people, we have to stand against this. If you're, if you're moved this morning and you feel like, wow, Lord, I need to do something to partner with you to destroy the devil's work. I want to refer you again to the back of our bulletin, to our community mission partners. Every one of these mission partners that we have at FCC are carefully handpicked because they're all on the front lines in the battle partnering with Jesus to destroy the devil's work. And if you want something tangible to sink your spiritual teeth into, you can volunteer at any one of these organizations and get involved in driving back the forces of evil in our world. And it will be fulfilling to you. Philippe. Thanks, Chuck. <clears throat> I like in that Micah pointed out that the woman recognized Jesus as Lord. And they're in the circle. They're in this circle, and there's teachers of the law, and there's Pharisees. And I think about my life, and I'm, are all of our lives. We're all members of different circles, whether that be work, whether that be family, whether that be recovery, whether that be, whatever it is. And not all of those circles, or not everyone in those circles, consider Jesus Lord. So when I when I when Micah pointed that out, I thought to myself, because in some of the circles I run in, it's like that's not like some people are, some people aren't, blah blah, you know, whatever. I have to remember that that's my Lord. Yes, yes. And it doesn't mean that I don't partake in recovery or I don't partake in this or that or, or disassociate from family members, but I have to remember that that's my Lord. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, that truth is becoming stronger and stronger today than it ever has been in my life. Mm -hmm. um, to not be ashamed or embarrassed or, or just even trepid to even say it. Not even embarrassed, just... Am I going to rub someone the wrong way here? That's really none of my concern. Right. If I rub you long because I call Jesus Lord, that's not my concern. You know what I mean? Mm. And mm. Uh, you're not concerned about whatever you're saying to me. And I got to kind of yeah. give the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? We got to be a little dangerous here. Right. So I love that. I love that Micah had pointed that out because it's, I need to hear that. I need to continue mm. to hear that because I have a, you know, in recovery, we say we have a built-in forgetter. And it's, it's easy to yeah. do things and forget. I need to constantly be reminded that this is who I am and this is whose I am. So right I love on. this story. Right Jesus is our Lord. Imagine this woman after this incident where she'd been brought before her entire community and called out. They made her stand before the crowd and then they said this to Jesus. But after that day, Jesus set her free from the condemnation of her own community and being stuck with that label into a new life where she could truly go and leave her life of sin. Amazing. Javier. 
So something that kind of stood out to me is um, he, that they, they caught her in the act. And that's, you know, that act isn't just happening in the marketplace. That's something that's usually oh, hidden. Yeah. So how did these Pharisees, how did these people know that this was going on? It kind of makes me think that they were in cahoots with it somehow and also would explain why man wasn't there either because he was in cahoots with them. And when Jesus talks later in Matthew how these people are hypocrites, how they'll go across the land to make a convert, and then he's, that, that person ends up becoming a, a worse son of hell, th that just demonstrates that they're willing to do anything to fool, to, to attack Jesus, to, to, to get him. And you have to think as sons and, and daughters and, and brothers and sisters in Christ that that's how evil also will come to us. It'll come looking like the law. It'll come looking like Pharisees. It'll come looking like people that we mm -hmm. should respect. But really, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And more than likely, they're the ones that set up the problem. And they're mm -hmm. trying to get you that way. It's just something that popped up to me there. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Thanks, Javier. Beware. Micah? Mark? You want to draw straws? <laughs> I think, I think what stood out to me, Chuck, was the, the evilness that sits in my heart and how easy it is for me to condemn somebody as opposed to confronting them. So I was really wow. struck by when my dad mentioned that Jesus, Jesus took this hostility towards the woman and transferred it to himself. That was, really, that was a really uh, interesting insight. And that was his ministry. That's what he came to do. One of the things that I'm continually struck by when we give room for the stories to move and work and when we lead with the stories, uh, it's amazing what will come out in people's lives that are suffering and caught in sin. Um, and the Holy Spirit reveals things and then we go, okay, this is what we're dealing with. We were doing this story with a group of people, and we actually had an Afghan refugee in the room with us. Um, and this was before all of them were coming. There's a, there's a lot that are coming here. But one of the things, when, I, when we're doing stories with people from these other cultures, right, it's amazing how much we learn because they're so much closer to it. And so this Muslim context, stoning is a big part of, of, their, of their culture, and uh, we were doing this story, and uh, this brother, this Afghan brother, who's a believer, well, he'd been a believer for a couple months, he actually left the story. Um, I don't know what was going on, but one of my friends went and followed him, and he was weeping out in the hallway. And so he pulled him into a, another private room, and, and, and this brother was just weeping. And finally, when he got his composure, he says, I, uh, he said, I was there. They buried her up to her waist and they were throwing stones. I still remember the sound that the rocks made when they hit her head. Um, and I won't go into all the details, he did. Um, and and my, my friend Eddie was praying with them and, he, and so he didn't know what to do. He says, we'd never been in this situation before. We can feel kind of removed from this story a little bit. Um, and so he prayed for him, prayed for the woman and her family, prayed for the perpetrators. And then, and then this brother Eddie came back into the circle and we were doing this discovery. We were kind of going, okay, what's God showing us from this story? And Omar spoke up and repeated the things that he had said to Eddie to the group, and, every, and it's just quiet. And then he, he's in tears again. He's saying, I wish Jesus would have been there. He could have saved her. Hmm. And he had experienced this. 
And as a shepherd, we're like, okay, there's something here that we need to deal with. But one of the things that's interesting, if we follow this like Jesus thing, willing to transfer hostility, one of the things that we don't get about some of these cultures is that to stick up for this woman would have made you complicit. This communal, they had to restore the honor. And so everyone is expected to participate in restoring honor of this community. They're expected to. So if you stand up, then the hostility turns to you. And so everyone is terrified. When we see injustice happening around us, we're terrified to intervene because we are terrified of this hostility that we see this person receiving. And so entering into these moments, entering in and being willing to stand up for injustice, to stand up to evil, like what my dad's been talking about, puts us at risk. But we have an example of someone who's done that. And it's terrifying, but it's the only way that healing and restoration can come. And it might mean that we suffer. You guys ever heard the saying, if you talk about the problem, then you become the problem. (laughs) It's terrifying to confront evil, but this is what we're here to do. And we have an example to follow and it's terrifying. Thank you, Micah. Jesus took the bullet for us. And a big part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be willing to take the bullet for others. When we love sinful people, we will have to confront evil people who are preventing them from entering the kingdom of heaven. Period. Lord, I'm not sure that we have ever completely understood this story about the adulterous woman and what you did for her. Maybe today we're we're understanding it better. Please do your work in us that we might be like you in this way. We pray this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.